good to be here. We are going to be looking at a message on humility. Um, yeah, that's the one. Okay. Go back to the first slide there. That's good. I'm going to let you do it. We'll see how good they are. So we are experiencing a lot of what you are experiencing. The fact is our DNA is so similar. The signs, the wonders, and miracles are what we read about. Tom and I were young bucks. We wanted it to happen. We pressed in to see it happen. And now in these years, we are seeing it happen. And you're going to hear from Anthony Simmons this Friday or Thursday if you come. Here's what happened to me. I'm in a national board meeting of the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies. These are not the most exciting meetings. Just telling you, your pastor skipped out of them. (laughs) He left me in a lurch there. But we took a time of prayer, and Anthony Simmons looked at me, and he said, I just had an open vision. There's a girl in your church. She's blonde hair. She's got a beanie on. She has jeans that have holes in them. She's skinny. And she's in trouble. Also, she's on the right side of your platform during worship. You need to, you need to help her. You don't get words like that that often. He was exactly right in everything. Was able to share that with that particular girl and, and her husband working with them right now because they've got a big mandate on their life. God's got tremendous giftings placed in them. And we need help along the way. And as leaders, we need to be warned sometimes, hey, take a little time here, help this person out. When he came, because Anthony preaches at our church too, he's just looking out in the congregation and he goes, she's sitting right there, isn't she? That's the one. I mean, there are other people that are close to that description. But he picked her right out and said, that's the person right there. Yes, you're right. That's her. We need the gifts of the Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be encouraged with the miracles of God because we're not going to get there with our own intellect. Intellect helps. There's lots of things you can know about God. There's lots of things that can firm him up and shore your faith. But at the end of the day, he still wants you to know the works of God. He still wants you to experience him. He wants you to have anchors intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, so that you stay the course. Because the times are difficult. And the times are dangerous. And we've all probably lived enough in the Lord to watch some of our friends, our very dear friends, fall away. So... We love seeing what God's doing. When we see the miracles that he's doing, it keeps us firm, it keeps us encouraged, it keeps us on course, it keeps us excited. We're seeing them all the time. Probably this year has been the year of deliverances. Probably two or three times a week. We're casting demons out of people. But, because I'm a pastor, not an evangelist, I stay around 
Because a deliverance where the person doesn't stay delivered is not a deliverance. It's another problem. Sometimes it's a bigger problem. You want to see them completely free, completely changed, completely living a different life, and that's what we're seeing. Some stunningly bound people now free. Maybe not the Gadrian demoniac, but kind of close. Kind of close. And I could tell stories, but it would take too much time. Healings. We've seen healings this year. Unprecedented healings. Internal healings. Physical healings. People coming to the Lord. We're doing a discipleship program. You guys are working on that too. Exciting thing is probably since we've had our discipleship courses, congregation members have led 60 people to the Lord. No pastors, just just, just your garden variety church member, which isn't garden variety at all, right? We're all kings and priests and laborers in the kingdom. We really got into this mistake thinking the clergy are supposed to do it all. The workplace is where God wants us to shine with the gospel. So we're doing a series on leadership. We're doing a book called Be the Leader You're Meant to Be. Now, I read this down at the University of Wisconsin in the dorms when I was with the Navigators. I was probably 20 years old. Haven't really went back and looked at the book, but as we discuss leadership, I'm like, we're going to use this book because different than Maxwell and some of the other people, it places the spiritual foundations, which I think you have to build on the spiritual foundations before you address leadership skills. There's There's leadership skills of all different kinds and varieties, but they have to be based on spiritual attributes, especially in the church, because the church is a spiritual organization. So you would think we'd know that, but I think sometimes we bypass it. We we take it as something for granted, but you can't take these inner qualities for granted. So in his chapter on the inner qualities of the leader, he discusses... Humility, faith, and he discusses holiness or purity. In fact, there's this first one he talks about is purity. Now, just think of all the people in leadership washed out because of the area of purity. And then think about the leaders that wash out because of the lack of humility, or if they don't wash out, it's just not that much fun to be around them. Not that much fun. Now, We need to change some thinking about leadership. Let's change the word to influence, okay? Leadership means influence. Every person sitting here is a leader because you would lead at least yourself. Some of us are doing a better job at it than others. But you're called to lead your life. God gave you a free will. The only one who can make the decisions in your life, for your life, are you. We tried as pastors to force people to make decisions. It works for about two minutes. You have to be internally governed. You have to internally lead your life. And how you're feeling success or failure right now today kind of depends on the job you're doing. You have influence in your life. But here's another lie, to think that our lives don't have influence over others. When I started this series in Two Rivers, I used that passage out of the book of Acts where Peter was walking down the street and they would put the sick people out so that even his shadow would touch them and they would be healed. 
Let's just use it as an analogy. Everyone here casts a shadow. It's a little easier in Arizona because there's 320 days of sun. I don't know. Here, there hasn't been that much sun. But you're cast a shadow. It means you have an influence over the people. If you're married, you deeply affect your spouse. You deeply affect your children. But you affect your neighbors. You affect the people at work or school or where you play, on your sports teams. Everybody gets affected by you. As a matter of fact, even going to the grocery store, you can have an impact. You cast a shadow. Now, one of the things that the enemy has done, and it's probably the greater share here, you don't think you cast a shadow. You don't think you have influence. You actually toy with sin, thinking, well, it doesn't really matter if I sin because no one will get hurt because I'm a nobody. See, when you talk like that, you're playing into his hand. Everyone casts a shadow. Everyone has influence. Do you know, simply coming today is having an influence. Because when you just do your own thing and you're lazy and you don't come, you affect people who are looking for you when they come to church. We call it showing up for the showdown. Everybody needs to show up for the showdown. You never know what can happen in church. I could preach messages just about what you do before you come to church, what you do after you come to church. If you just bug in and bug out, you just miss the major part of the mission field because there's always somebody that came new today. There's always, there's always someone that came here hurting. There's always someone that came here with a need, and we walk right by it because our vision's so short. I'd love to tell you the stories of people who were just talked to at church and their lives were completely changed. Just the person sitting next to them realized this is an appointment with a destiny. In my life and in the person sitting next to me, there's a family in our church and they're just a beautiful, nice family. He's a nurse, she's a teacher. Caballero's last name, Miguel and his wife. And uh, there was a guy who showed up at our church, first Sunday, first time visitor from Indiana. He has never been without a friend because the caballeros shook his hand, found out he was new, and have greeted him, had him sit by him, have taken him out to eat, have invited him over to their house because they have a shadow. They have influence. And I always tell the story, and I can even show you in the hallway where Sandra Olson, Roger Olson, Pastor Roger Olson's wife, greeted me right out there. And it was the reason why I came back to church the second time. It wasn't the worship. It wasn't the preaching. It was that I had a relationship. This kind of probably later 30s, 40-year-old woman who was kind of about the age of my mother noticed a college kid. And you know, in this town, college kids get overlooked because they come and they go. But see, we have the love of God poured out in our heart. You can get enough love on a particular Sunday to love a person you will never see again. Don't think that you're without resources. If you ask him for resources, there are resources to love, to care, and to help any day of your life. 
as many people as you need to. See, that's the life of a leader. So we're going to look at humility. So there's a song. We were out for the 4th of July up on the Mogollon Rim, which is the northern part of Arizona goes up about 3,000 feet, maybe 4,000 feet. Actually, it's more than that from downtown, from where Phoenix is. So the temperature drops 4 degrees for every 1,000 feet. The Mogollon Rim is a great place to be when it's 115 in Phoenix. And the people were helping me with my message, because this message was the one I preached next Sunday. And they started singing this song, and some of you know it. It's an older song, but Mac Davis sold it, saying it. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Right? I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking every day. You guys know anybody like that? Are you like that? Could be. Could be. Uh, You're not as good looking as you think. I remember I happened to be teaching for a seminar of biblical faith in Dusseldorf, Germany. And they had... uh, fluorescent lights, and I looked in the mirror, and I realized I had crinkles. Now they're wrinkles, and they're getting deeper every year. Whatever. This getting better looking each day? It's not true. So let's look at kind of a foundational scripture. The context is King Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream. He's trying to get the interpretation of the dream, and some people inform him, since nobody else can do it, there's this guy named Daniel that can. And what I want you to hear in this passage, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, is the, the heart of Daniel. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Now, These are the most capable humans on the face of the earth at this time. And they cannot answer the king. There are things that go to the end of human experience and human ability. That's where God comes in. But he's saying, hey, look, all your big dudes, they can't do this. Verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Now, we're going to see later on in the book of the Daniel, not today, but you, if you've read it, you know. They kind of lift Nebuchadnezzar up to be a form of deity. And they're going to actually have to worship his statue. But Daniel has the strength in God to very politely kindly say to the king, however, there is a God in heaven. And you know, Dane County is kind of a difficult place to say that, isn't it? And there is a God in heaven. Sometimes we have a hard time saying there is a God in heaven. I don't know about you. We had this one guy in our church two years ago, miraculously delivered, is now walking in kind of a Todd White anointing. But he probably starts out a conversation as he's getting words of knowledge for people like this. God really loves you. God thinks you're wonderful. And in two sentences, 
He has so many people in the greater Phoenix area crying. We think that they don't want to hear those words. They do. We think that those words will not resonate in the heart of, you know, Joe Average today. Wrong. We were made for God. We recognize when God speaks to our spirit, even if it's dead, even if we're not born again, there's something inside that recognizes when God speaks. And I've watched this guy, because a lot of times when we have little adventures after church, I'll call him over if I got a tough one. And he'll, he'll just pray for a little bit and says, you know, you're a businessman and you're really good at this and God really loves how you work. And bah, the guy's bawling his head off. And it's a way to say there is a God in heaven. And we're called to wherever we live, wherever we move and have our being to, to be like Daniel and give the glory to him. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. As for you, O king, while, you are, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now, two rivers is a church that presses in for the gifts of the Spirit. But you know what? I've watched that journey ruin a number of people. Because when they pressed in and began to move in the gifts of the Spirit, they forgot where the gifts came from. Gifts are gifts. You don't earn them. Gifts do not make you spiritual. The fruit of the Spirit talks about maturity and spirituality. Gifts mean you got a gift. You can be a two-year-old and get a new fire truck. It's not that you're that special of a two-year-old. The person who gave you the gift is pretty special. We need to earnestly pursue spiritual gifts, but remembering always that they're gifts. We didn't come up with it. When we see miracles, it should make our knee bow. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I know where this came, and it didn't come from me. There, there's no way this could happen through us. See, this is the posture of Daniel's heart. He says, hey... I might get the revelation of this dream. I might get the interpretation, but it's not wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. He is not elevating himself. But you know what? Generally speaking, when something like happens to this, we start going around like a rooster going, cock-a-doodle-doo. Ain't I great? And everyone's going, no. <laughs> but the only one who doesn't hear it is us because we just think we're something. How can you take credit for a gift? See, I think he used the word gift on purpose. This isn't a skill. This isn't an ability. Anytime a spiritual gift manifests itself, it's a miracle. In the spirit realm, touching the physical realm, you're not responsible. He is. So then he gets the glory. Daniel's got humility down. You say, well, what does humility look like? This. Standing before the king of kings in this place, the most glorious empire at this time, he doesn't, he doesn't be Tarzan. No, you're Daniel. He's Tarzan. So 
Another thought on humility, and just, just to understand, I like languages, I like what happens with languages. King James Version, talking about Moses, Numbers 12, 3. Now Moses was very meek. Well, how meek was he? Above all the men which were on the face of the earth. Now, just to get the idea that principalities and powers and heavenly places influence humanity, the word meek was a very good word. It was a very useful word. And when the King James was written in about the 1600s, meek was a great word. But you need to see the importance of humility and the devastation of pride by seeing what I don't think a human did. I think spiritual forces moved on humans over centuries. You've got to understand, Satan plays a long game. And here's what he changed the meaning of weak. Somehow we arrived in our culture at meek means weak. So what the King James writers wanted to communicate gets confused by a new definition. Where did this definition come from? Why do humans think this way? But to prove to you that it still happens... The translators of modern English translations saw that meek had been corrupted, so they changed it to a new word to convey the right meaning. And what is that word? Humble. Now, the man Moses was very humble. How much? More than any other man, more than any man who's on the face of the earth. See, we updated the word because the word had lost meaning. Meek means weak. We updated to humble. What did these very same principalities and powers do? See, they don't just attack humans. They attack language. They attack attack the meaning of language. Instead of humility being an attractive attribute, humility today still means weak. It still has come to mean for a broad spectrum of society, humble means weak. Now, if you speak Spanish, very interesting, él es humilde. It doesn't mean he is humble. The primary use of that word, at least in the Cono Sur, which is Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, is poor. They've taken this word humilde, which is a great word, it's a beautiful word, and they've attached the meaning of being destitutely poor. Why would that happen? Don't you see the insidious intellect behind the word? He doesn't want any of us to strive for, to want, or to admire humility, which is the very thing God calls us to. Sometimes in church, we've got to stand up for the language that really means. We've got to define it enough times that you change the definition in your mind. Humility is a beautiful word. Humility is a powerful concept. We can't let the world change it on us. Here's why meek doesn't mean weak. Here's why humble doesn't mean weak. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked at their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
Now, if you read earlier in the context of this story, it says that Pharaoh hired taskmasters. And what are those guys like? Just like the movies, man. They're big dudes. You know, they got a leather belt, and they stink, and their breath is bad. And they usually got a whip, and they know how to use it. And they have no conscience, and they can beat a human to death and not even flinch. Well, Moses killed one of those dudes, in my opinion, with his bare hands. Therefore, meek does not mean weak. We have to come to a better definition of humility, and the best one that I know of is this. A useful definition of humility is power under control. Power under control. Humble people are not weak people. Humble people are powerful people. So if you're an arrogant, proud husband, you're not strong, you're weak. Give him an elbow. If you're an arrogant woman, if there is not room in most rooms for you and your head, you're not strong. You're weak. You're very weak, as a matter of fact. The humble person can have knowledge, great knowledge, and be quiet when a new Christian reads a Bible verse and tells his new insight. And the humble person, wow, that is so good. Because it doesn't matter what we know. What matters is what the next generation knows. Think about when you teach. I've got grandkids now. I have two. It's a pretty good gig. You get to play with them, spoil them, and hand them back whenever they're difficult. I had four kids of my own. I already did the drill. I give them back. I got two more on the way. But isn't it interesting? You can be a 61-year-old adult and just be so thrilled when your grandkid pronounces a word right. Why? Because we know that's how the human race continues. When they begin to notice things and they begin to put two and two together, when they can string four words together in a sentence, we're just like, wow. (laughs) Humility under control. It's power under control. Power under control. That's how we're supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to be. You know, this whole cock-a-doodle-doo thing like the big old rooster, that's actually what we're going to talk about in a little bit. That's actually insecurity manifesting itself. We need to move from a position of strength. Now look at this picture. If you notice, the guy's fingers are above the skull. And if you know anything about childhood development, the, the bones of the cranium, the head, they're very soft right now at birth. They're very malleable. This guy looks strong enough to be able to crush the head of that baby if he wanted to. I know it sounds a little... But I'll bet he could. I'll bet he could crush his head. And this, to me, is an example of power and control. There is enough strength to hold the baby up, probably for a long time. And there is enough strength to crush the baby's head. 
But this strength is under control, and that strength will probably defend that baby to death. Rightly oriented. That's a man's man. A true man will defend that baby with his life. You know that's a good man, and I know that's a good man. And that's how we're supposed to live as Christians. We're supposed to have our power under control, and we're supposed to defend the weak, defend the poor, defend the ones who don't know yet. That's why humble people don't have to gossip because gossip is the transmission of juicy knowledge to make you feel and look good, to look in the know. A lot of times you can just let that go because why? Because I've got my power under control. So number one, pride causes a preoccupation with self. This is the most easily diagnosed attribute of pride. All you have to do is look at your mental train of thought in your head. And if the pronoun belongs to the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, you're walking in pride. Now there's an arrogant, boastful pride that just sits in your face, but there's a false humility that's over there going, woe is me, I just can't, I'm, I'm, I'm. That's also pride. Both, both spectrums are pride. So pride causes a preoccupation with self. If you're at the center of all your thoughts, if you're at the center of all your conversations, if you just can't stop talking about you, I exalt me, I exalt me. You know it stinks. You'll see it in another person. You'll see it just like that. But we got a log in our own eye. How do I know about this stuff? Been there. And it's not always done then. Here's one insidious thing about pride, because you have to talk about pride in order to talk about humility. We go back and forth, in and out of pride. It's not like you always are winning. And we can be proud in this hour when we talk to these people, and we can be arrogant as can be talking to these people the next hour. The situation, the people in the room, whether or not we feel confidence. Now, I don't really love much the Myers-Briggs test. And I don't really love much the whole introvert talk. I think much introvertedness is woundedness. It's woundedness. It's hurt. Things that happen that make certain people in certain situations not say anything. Why? Because they did one time, and when they did, they got crushed. So they just learned to keep their thoughts to themselves. That kind of introvertness can be healed. You can heal that because there's a time to be introverted. Everyone needs downtime. Everybody needs processing time. We're on a vacation with a bunch of people, but I knew that for this morning, last night, I went home early. I need some time with me. I need some time with Jesus. Everybody needs that. To always live there 
Always is a lot of time. To always live there and say that you always have to have it, it's somewhat selfish. Because you can only help people when you're not there. I can't help people by living under a rock. I'm going to have to come out from the rock and actually interact with humanity. And sometimes I don't want to. I don't really want to talk to these people. The bigger your church gets, the more you want to be an introvert. Right? I get the guy who had a garage door and he drove in and came up the platform for service and then he dro- I get it. I don't think it's a true shepherd, but I totally get it. You can get worn out. Pride can be observed by pronoun now. So when we look at ourselves, we become insensitive to the needs of others. This, you got to capture this. If you can't see other people's needs, it could be, you got to always go, take this with a grain of salt, but it could be that you're too prideful. If you humble yourself, and this is the power of humility, if you humble yourself and kind of look around, you realize other people's have needs too. It isn't all about your needs being met. In marriage, if you have a marriage of two humble people, both will feel taken care of. But when you have a marriage between a proud person and a humble person, a lot of times the needs of the humble person will go unmet because the proud person can't see past themselves. So what's the manifestation of pride in that situation? Selfishness. This is why humility is so important, because selflessness is beautiful. And if you're always trying to get someone else to meet your need, you could be, because you always got to say could be, walking in pride. And if you're the kind of person that meets too many people's needs, you got to watch that too. Can't you burn out? But it's interesting that some people can walk into a room and never see a need. Never see it. They can come home from work and never see a need in their family. Their wife is tired. There's there's things that need to be done, and there's just a plop down because so-and-so's tired. Well, so is everybody else. Did you notice that? (laughs) Did you notice that everybody's tired? Now, I don't know if this is the same in Madison, but I took a survey last week in Phoenix. I asked if there was anybody in the congregation who wasn't busy. Not one person raised their hand in three services. Not one hand was. Nobody thinks they're not busy. You know, I can't go to church. I'm too busy. I can't have a quiet time. I'm too busy. I can't, you know, do discipleship because I'm too busy. I can't do this because I'm too busy. I usually say it like this. When's the last time you wet your pants? They're like, well, you know, it's been a while. Well, why don't you wet your pants now? And it takes him a while to come up with the answer. Because actually, it's a priority not to wet your pants. Right? It's a priority. You know that if you go too long, it could get wet or worse. Right? And you don't have depends on, so hey. Think about it. What adult here wets their pants every day? Because you made it a priority to get to the bathroom. The secret of a successful life is making the right priorities. 
making the right priorities. Humility allows you to see other people and make an adjustment in your priorities so everybody gets blessed, not just you. Not just the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. Do you know what it's like to be married to me, myself, and I? First of all, polygamy is a crime in America. (laughs) Right? Philippians 2, 3, and 4. This is talking about Jesus, and you can't get a better example than Jesus. Do some things from selfishness and empty conceit. See, that's the way Christians read it. Do some things. But the Bible says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as kind of equal to yourself. Ooh. Oh, as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. You got to read the Bible like it's written. And it's brutal. The Bible is brutal sometimes. It's like, it's not all about you. It's about everybody else. Don't just look out for your stuff. But see, we talk about this in Two Rivers a lot. There is a spiritual economy. God's ways are not our ways, but God's rules are not our rules. God's economy, and inside the economy is not just money. Everything is kind of an economy. If you humble yourself, he exalts you. If you exalt yourself, you get unexalted. If you take a place because of your own strength, your own wisdom, your own power, your own pride, you have to watch that position like crazy. I just came through 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, all these kings, right? Look at the ones who took the throne for themselves. Some of them don't even last five days. But when God gives a throne, it's pretty hard for anybody to take it away. Humility waits for God to exalt them because it's the right place at the right time in the right way. Number two, pride causes ignorance. Now we've got to know some things. Stupid means you can't learn. You, you're stupid. You can't learn. I don't really know many of those people. Most people are not stupid. They're ignorant. I am ignorant. There is many things that exist on the face of the earth, and I am ignorant of them. It means I have not learned them yet, or I have not taken the time to learn them. When we started our church in Two Rivers, I wanted Nathan Rohde to go with me and be the worship leader because I didn't want to learn how to lead worship. I didn't want to do it. I had enough to do. And you know, when you have a pastor that can also lead worship, it's actually kind of a problem for him when he plants a church because he does too much. There were things that I just decided, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to learn it. I'm going to trust that someone else can do it so that other people take responsibility. Women are like this all the time at home. They will not learn how to do things even though they are so intelligent because they know if they learn how to do it, their husband won't do it anymore. (laughs) It's just just the way men work. So I'm not learning how to do that because he won't do anything then. Right? Now, famous person said this, I've not met many know-it-alls. But I've met many, know en- I know enough. I know enough to get by. I know enough to make it. You know, when you're offered these opportunities for spiritual growth and you don't take them, here's what you're saying. I know enough. I know enough. Do you? Do you really? 
See, I know enough is a manifestation of pride. It's going to keep you from getting more. Now, there's also this, I know more than you. I'm talking to an 18-year-old, and he's telling me why he's an atheist and why he doesn't believe in Jesus. And I'm thinking, you insolent little rascal. I mean, I just wanted to grab his neck and twist it a little bit. I'm like, where did you come to the conclusion with your little 18-year-old brain that you have been around the world and back? He's just telling you, you know, you know Pastor, that might be good enough for you, but not, I don't need it. See, he's, he's, I know more than you. So we had about a three-hour conversation, and at the end of it, I actually shared the bridge with him, the bridge illustration, the gospel, and at the end, this little know-it-all said, hey, can I take that with me? I think I'll put that out on my dresser. You know what you're going to learn? You're going you're gonna to hopefully with me, pray with me on it. You're going to see I know enough move to I don't know enough where he can humble himself and get born again. And that's what's going to happen. So this wise person that I'm quoting here is my wife, Teresa. <laughs> she knows way more than I know. Pride makes people self-sufficient and unteachable. Why is it that all of Madison did not line up to get into church this morning? See, they think they're going to heaven. Nine out of ten people think in America that they're going to heaven because of good works. Therefore, they have no need to get up today and go to church. They do not realize that they could die tomorrow and fall into hell. They are proud about what they know. So they're self-sufficient and they're also unteachable. You cannot teach and know-it-all anything because they already know it all. So if you're a know-it-all in something, be careful because you will never learn anymore. The more I know, the more humble I get. Here's what I know about the Bible. Truly, truly, even though I've memorized thousands, I don't know that much. I talk to people who study things and I go, Let's not even worry about the answer to that question. Let's worry about the fact that I didn't even have the question. I was just cruising very comfortably through my life, and that thought never even crossed my radar. It's pride that makes you like that. So it's humility that makes you say, Jesus, teach me today. Teach me something new. How about this? This is a very daring play. Prayer. Show me a blind spot. Show me a blind spot. Now, when I do marriage counseling, I just say it like this. Because usually, they're commanded. Usually it's the wife. I am a great wife. <laughs> okay, sweetie. If you say so. But sometimes it's husband. I am a great husband. Here's the definition of a great husband. You can't say it. Your spouse has to say it. Your spouse has to say you're great. She's a great wife. You tell me your great wife means nothing to me. You could be absolutely so arrogant you can't see past your eyelids. You got a spouse that's dying, needy, not getting what even the typical marriage contract calls for because you're so arrogant you think you're the greatest wife in the world. That person's got to say, sweetie, you are the greatest wife in the world. And you are not a great husband until your wife says you are a great husband. See, when you put a label on yourself, you just said you're something that you may not be. You become unteachable. You don't listen. 
we were having a Valentine's uh, banquet, and a person was giving a testimony, and the husband said, they, must, they were about 60 now, so I'm just doing the math. They must have been about 30. He turned to his wife, and he said, Honey, I need a little bit more passion in this marriage. And here's what she did. She continued on for two decades and did not listen to what he said. After she went to some seminars and she was training for a master's degree in counseling, her husband's words came back to him. Oh, two decades ago, my husband asked me for a little passion, and I never even answered his question. Not with my life. And so part of the Valentine's banquet was explaining, we humbled ourselves so that we could hear each other's true meaning. Blind pe- pride blinds people to their own needs and own blind spots. I have blind spots. I love my staff because they're brutally honest. You have to be humble in order to get a staff like that. There are tyrants. Just tell me the good news. Like the guy in North Korea, I wouldn't give him the bad news because you die when you give him the bad news. You got to create an atmosphere of security. When you do, then they tell you the truth. And sometimes it hurts. But the reason why I want that is because I don't want to be the emperor with no clothes, marching down the street starkers, thinking I got these beautiful clothes on when I'm naked as a jaybird. And everybody else goes, Pastor Thomas naked as a jaybird. I'm the only one who doesn't know he's naked is Tom. That's called a blind spot. Pride causes people to ignore good advice and counsel. How many times have you offered some good counsel to somebody and they said, thank you, thank you. And then they went out and did exactly the opposite. And then they came back with the pieces. The desire to say I told you so is almost insurmountable. But you have to say, you can't rub it in their face. Pride causes insecurity. Insecurity is an excessive concern for how one appears in the eyes of others. We should be, within reason, concerned about how we fit into society. I'm always asking myself if I'm in reality. You need to do that. But that's not excessive concern for what other people think. For a pastor, usually there's two or three people, especially if your church is little, that you really want them to like what you said. And when they don't, you're just all, I think I'll die right now. And then you realize, I got to get over this man-pleasing thing. How many of us this morning are insecure? We're excessively concerned about the Joneses think about our deck. And here's what the Joneses really think about your deck. They haven't even thought about it. But we're just so concerned that they, they sit in their house and they think about our deck every time they look out at it. See, we're often trapped by other people's thoughts that aren't even other people's thoughts. There are thoughts in our head, and some of them have been sent by hell to trap us. You got to stop listening to that too much. Now, you make friends, like I got a friend, Tommy Flaherty over here. If he tells me something, I listen. Because I've judged his wisdom in his life and found it to be something that when it speaks, 
It's kind of like Merrill Lynch. When Merrill Lynch, if you've got to be old to know this one, but if Merrill Lynch speaks, all these bulls stop. You listen. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Commending yourself, that's called pride. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. That's how they got into pride. Oh, this church is so spiritual. How do you know? Well, we just looked at each other. We thought we were. Well, what if you compare yourself to something else? And God goes, actually, you guys are carnal. You got to be real careful with giving yourself the pat on the back. But then again, we should give a pat on the back when it's due. I mean, if you check it out and you bet, like we, we have one guy, and I think, does he come here, Dave Ogren? Does Dave Ogren come here? Dave Ogren, he gets around about 54 of our churches per year. If Dave Ogren says, your church has these strengths, don't see it very often. You can take that to the bank. If he says your church has these weaknesses, you can take that to the bank too because he's been around. Pride can cause insecurity. Insecure leaders can't relax. They didn't get there by themselves with God, so now they're insecure. Insecure leaders constantly worry about what others think of them, and they lose focus on the objectives. Saul was supposed to be a general fighting a war, but he was worried about the people, and so he forced himself, the Bible says, to offer a sacrifice and take the priestly function. And God tore the kingdom from him right there. He should have been focused on his objectives as a general. He should have been focused on the war and not focused on what Samuel was supposed to be up to. Do you know this leader? I know this leader. I've been this leader. Other people can become a threat rather than a help. Now here's how you know you got a strong leader. They have other strong people around them. If you have a leader who's not strong, there will only be weak people around them or bad people around them. If you watch Lord of the Rings, the king of Rohan had his trusty sidekick, Wormtongue, to be his counselor. What it really says is the king of Rohan was a weak leader. He should have had better people, and he should have recognized who was going to tell him the truth. Pastors who are insecure cut the heads off of people who are coming up because they don't want anybody to outshine them. That's not happening here at this church. You can see the depth of leadership here. But if you ever get called to another church, if you go where a pastor's insecure and it's generally a smaller church, he will cut your head off if he's insecure. You need to find out how that's going. Two results of this kind of prideful insecurity, over-the-top plans and programs. In the Midwest, there are a number of churches that were built for a size that they have never filled in two decades. I think they didn't do God's will. I think they did their will. They had a vision, but it wasn't from God. But preachers are great at saying, God told me to do this. Well, here's how you know if God told you. It gets done. (laughs) It gets finished. So... They've also, here's the second, and it's just the opposite from a huge program and a huge man vision, is they, they're, they retreat into inaction. They're frozen by fear. That's what insecurity will do to a leader. Most of us in this room, you can just start right here and go around. We're number two. We're not number one. We often don't do something because Satan has effectively told us we can't. Or if we hear the voice of God, 
the enemy comes along and talks us out of the voice of God in about a week. Now, when you're hearing the voice of God, you've got to hold it up and you've got to continue through. I know this from experience. I heard God tell me to go to Phoenix and start a church. But if you think that I was there and didn't doubt, you're crazy. You're crazy. There were times I'm like, what am I doing here? It happened in Mount Hope when I planted in that church. Here you preach to hundreds of people, and I got there, and when we dismissed the children's church on Sunday morning, I had six people. And there was my pride going. If you were back at Lake City or City Church, you would be preaching to hundreds, if not thousands, and here you are preaching to six. And then I heard the voice of the Lord. Keep it on. It's going to grow. And it did. So, just how do you save yourself? Oh, is that clock wrong? My eyesight is wrong. Well, here's this, and I'll finish this. Why does this church function on worship? Why do you talk about consistent Bible reading? So that you consistently get pride and you are consistently shown humility. True worshipers, true worshipers, I've never met one yet who is an arrogant person. So stand with me. Now remember, you can come to a worship service and not have arrived at spiritual maturity in worship. When you worship God to the point of meeting with God, it will solve your pride issues because you will see him as he is. You will see you as you. And the cool thing about comparing yourself to God is he never makes you feel bad. You never feel bad when you compare yourself to Jesus. You never feel lowly or awful or insignificant or useless. But you need, that's why this conference coming up, intimacy with God is so important. You need intimacy with God to not walk in arrogance. It has to happen. It's the only check we have. True humility comes in truly seeing the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to please you. We got up early on a beautiful summer day and we turned out in force to hear the word of the Lord and to worship you. And we did it because we're willing to say, I will humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I will do it. You don't want to make me humble. You want me to voluntarily bow my knee. So, Lord, I do it. Everybody out there in your heart, when's the last time you truly bowed your knee? All of you, all of your gifts, all of your abilities, everything, you put it at the altar and you said, I'm all in, Jesus, and you are the Lord of every part of my life. I humble myself under your mighty hand, Jesus, that you would rule and reign, that you would control, that you would direct, and you would empower my life. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great morning.